Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, before we get the show started, I wanted to let you know we are giving away a bunch of brand new black magic gear. Yeah, cameras, switchers, DaVinci Resolve licenses, a bunch of awesome stuff. So stay tuned to learn how you can enter to win free gear from Black Magic, and we're going to tell you all about it later on in this episode. Now cue the music. Hey, welcome to the 234th episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, screenwriting, and directing. This episode is brought to you by patrons Saint Hope and Grace Watch Media. I'm Matt Emmo. And I'm Warren Kaplan, and today we have the cinematographer Benedict Spence, who shot Netflix's End of the Effing World Season 2, among many other things. And we have like a wonderful, wonderful chat. We don't talk to a lot of cinematographers because, you know, they're boring usually, but Benedict... Yeah, yeah. It was great. It was so fun. I think... I learned a um, lot. I, I we I, I learned a lot as well, and it was just it's maybe our most technical episode in a way that was really fun. So if you're interested in the art of cinematography, and most importantly, I think we talk a lot about the rules that a cinematographer and director make for themselves, a philosophy to create the look of a show, and that's a thing that I think we talk about a lot on our show on the podcast. But I think this is the most nitty-gritty on specifically what it means to create a philosophy that guides the look of the show. And if you look at season two of End of the Effing World, all of those things come into play. Every single frame looks specifically only like End of the Effing World season two. And also, it's informed by the way in which they, you know, they're basing it off a graphic novel that's very elemental, very basic, very graphic. So how do you put that into real terms? I think, or in, in the episode, you say, well, like, yeah, it's easy to just like look at a comic book and be like, oh, we're going to make a comic booky. But what does that literally mean? Yeah, I we, we recorded this a f- few weeks ago and I have a, a confession to make, which is I stole some of the rules for something I shot since then because... I was just so excited. And when I say rules, when we talk about rules with Benedict, it's not like, oh, you should always do this or you should always do this. It's when you come up with a set of rules for your show. So specifically the rule that I really like that they talked about that I also try to do in something is to shoot all the coverage of the characters within the dialogue is how Benedict put it, you know, where you put the camera basically clean singles where the camera is as if it's between the two characters not behind one of the characters and center punching them you know because there's you get kind of this like cone brothers like wide angle comedic center punched clean single look and i did it and i think i think you can feel it yeah great man i don't know if That's i killed exciting. it but i do have a big weakness for overs i think the reason an over the shoulder shot is so nice is because it gives you geography, it ties two characters together, and most importantly, it gives you a foreground element to create like a layered composition. And so shooting clean is always scary to me because I feel like I'm taking away some of the things that might distract you, <laughs> you know, and create a prettier shot. So what I'm hearing, so there's not anything inherently good or bad about clean or inside, right? But what I'm hearing is that you took the rules that we talked about in this episode and forced yourself to reassess the habits that you have as a filmmaker and decide which ones you wanted to break for this specific project, which is what I think maybe listeners could do as well. Look at that. This is a teachable moment. 
right? Talk about the rules. Think about it. There's not a right or wrong way to do most of the things we're talking about. If everything's exposed correctly, quote unquote, or whatever, that you, and it's the right speed, that's kind of it, right? But reassessing why you shoot the way you shoot and then making a conscious decision to shoot that way or a different way is something that we could all benefit from doing a little bit more. And this conversation helped you do that. I bet it could help listeners at home as well. Yeah. Practice stuff. And you have to commit. That's the problem. Because even while we were shooting, I was like, oh, would an overlook nicer or would a longer lens be better? It would kind of blur out the background more and then we wouldn't have to worry about the art direction there. And then, you know, we wouldn't see the other character's shoulder, but it would be nice. But I just had to be like... Benedict nope. was on one shoulder and a blurry shoulder <laughs> of an actor in the foreground was on your other shoulder that's the devil and the and the angel in this exactly. situation for you Aaron. yeah but no this is a really enlightening conversation we had with benedict i'm very excited for people to listen to it and i even told the cinematographer i work with a lot about it and he keeps asking me when it's coming out and the answer is today well before we get into our conversation with benedict we do have to remind everyone that we have a patreon Patreon.com slash just shoot it pod is the place where you can throw us a buck or two if you want to support the show in some way. We've got a lot of expenses out there. We've got a little bit of marketing I'm spending money on now. We've got hats to buy for people, stickers to buy for people, shipping to buy for people, and then also, of course, paying our team who dedicates so much of their time to making things happen. Uh, you'll notice in our show credits now, we've got a new person, Derek Aiello, is there to help us out. He's getting the social media out in a bigger, better way so that we can be more dependent more consistent make sure that you are up to date on what is happening on the show and thanks to uh, your help on patreon derek is a part of the team now i know i've noticed derek has been tweeting all my endorsements and now i'm like oh i should probably think a little bit more about those endorsements before i give look them. at that that is a way that derek is making our show better <laughs> the feedback mechanism is making me a better host so that he doesn't tweet out bad things that i say yeah things that aren't just in your living room <laughs> Yes. Yeah, I'm ready for endorsements. I'm going to endorse um, Dirty Dishes. Awesome. Well, thanks everyone for uh, helping us out. Patreon.com slash Just Shoot It Pod. It's the equivalent of buying us a coffee or maybe paying, I don't know, 99 cents an episode, something like that. And if you give us 10 bucks, you will get a free Just Shoot It podcast hat, which I've seen Carlin Hudson has been wearing all over the place and just getting jobs left and right. I think there is a connection. It, I think it makes you a little cooler. Roxy's shooting something as well, and I bet you a million bucks she's got that hat with her. I might take that bet. We'll see. I got to text someone <laughs> first. Without further ado, let's talk to Benedict Spence. Hey, folks, we're interrupting this incredible episode of the podcast to tell you about a new sponsor that we're working with, Front Row Insurance Brokers. One of the challenges of being a filmmaker is that there's a lot of risks that we take, and we really just want to focus on making good stuff. So what if there was a company that could take those risks, manage them for us while we are being artists? That's right. Front Row Insurance Brokers arranges film production insurance to cover the risks associated with your production. They cover features, TV shows, documentaries, commercials, music videos, webisodes, basically anything you can watch on big media or phone-sized screens. Yeah, Front Row will help you focus on your artistic vision by transferring all the risks to them and minimizing your production hazards. And they cover any budget from $2,000 all the way up to $200 million. There's nothing that's too small or too big. If you are shooting in Canada, use coupon code JUSTSHOOTIT50OFF for 50 bucks off your film production insurance. That's promo code JUSTSHOOTIT50OFF to save 50 bucks. And if you're shooting in the U.S., that same code can be redeemed offline by mentioning it to a broker, by email, or over the phone. It's like a cool password if you're in the U.S. That's just shoot it 50 off. Check him out. Let us know how it goes. You're with us from London, right? Yes, I am. Yeah, from uh, East London. Uh, yeah, thank you for the invite. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Well, Benedict, let's, let's jump into the end of the fucking world, right? Yes. Because you had been kind of gigging around for a long time before that. End of the fucking world, you know, it's such an accomplishment, right? When we were talking off mic about how it's kind of like the goal, right? Like to do a cool, like indie Netflix show with its own look and feel and that's kind of zeitgeisty you know is a is a big deal right so how did you go about tackling something that was originally a graphic novel and had its own visual identity how do you kind of jump into that world yeah I mean it's it's uh, it was an absolute dream of a job to be given I mean who doesn't want to get a cool uh, Netflix show like the end of the effing world to shoot um, yes I mean uh, before, before we actually get into like the nitty-gritty of how you shot it like how did you get the job 
I got the job um, because of my good friends and director Lucy Forbes. I've been working with her for 12 or 13 years and she, like me, comes from a sort of a factual entertainment background, so like a sort of reality TV background. And uh, yeah, she we, we, did a, we did a little pilot called In My Skin, which we shot in the summer of 2018 uh, and then that was released and um, off the back of that pilot, um, which is a BBC comedy series and she went for the interview went for another interview got the job and then got me in the room for a meeting about it and uh yeah i, I managed to lie enough to trick all the producers into letting me uh, shoot it you know it, it's funny actually because i feel like a lot of our good friends who get made that jump right when they were maybe shooting you know commercials and music videos and their own passion projects and short films and stuff everybody's got like a dp or two that they love and they want to bring along with them but we see instances where you know the real doesn't pass the mustard for producers or you know whatever big fancy suit there is and they're like no we really want to bring in an outside person to come collaborate i mean i'll be totally honest with you i didn't think i was going to get the job you know i didn't think i was one of those sort of super cool hip dops and i still don't think i am you know you're drinking I, beer that's pretty cool i but yes i am it is uh, i like to think drinking is very cool um a warm british beer though no an ice cold uh, american beer in fact uh so yeah so certainly i mean i was i you can talk to my agents if you want i was for the first time ever i was sort of cut up about this job because I, I went for interview i was like oh my god they're not gonna they're not gonna get me to do it i'm not one of these cool hip dops you know it's very nice of lucy to get me in the room you know i just but you know i just haven't got the name i'm not cool i'm not one of this that and the other and i think lucy gave them a little prod and, and yeah i got it um but yes certainly you know almost almost any other show almost any you know it's so the show is so cool and it's so loved you know almost any other show and i wouldn't have given quite as much for shit um but um but yes i i, I was exceptionally lucky that i had my good friend lucy p- pushing for me do you think that was the decision factor like the, the reason that you got i mean i I, I, I like or... to think it was my um it was my prior work on mtv uh pit my ride um but um, <laughs> um but yeah i mean certainly you know yeah she she i mean without lucy i without my friend director lucy forbes i would not have ever been in the room in the first place did you have other scripted material or like, like we joke about pimp my ride and all that stuff but you had to have had some other some yeah absolutely i mean I'd, I'd sort of worked on on mostly comedy series for for about sort of six years beforehand um i'd done a couple of dramas nothing major well in my skin i just kind of watched the trailer of it and it it has very much that it like a lower budget look of end of the fucking world right the coverage the casting the overcast lighting which i know is just like a british thing mm, yeah very much so but it, it has that very f- similar feeling but if you look at end of the fucking world it's just kind of that plus like a polish and like a color contrast that seems like you had more control over your environment yeah certainly i mean you know sort of in my skin um the job which got lucy the gig the end of the effing world and the job which i guess in turn got me the the gig yeah i mean i, I think really the big thing that we did for for that for that show specifically was to create a rule book uh, was to create a sort of a show bible which i'd never done before and for in my skin we had some very strict rules about how we work out coverage and what lenses we use for certain shots and people and who writes these books is it you or is it lucy or that's me with with lucy as well so you know if it's a visual thing i'm there writing it but the rules are decided between the the two of us dude matt did you look so benedict sent us the end of the fucking world to guidebook specifically not a rule book and it's quite amazing did you look at this yet matt did you open it up unfortunately we can't share it with listeners sorry can we read some excerpts from it though yeah please do be my guest can we do a staged reading at the local bookshop (laughs) you're welcome to read some excerpts if you want there's just two pages like if we could just dig into these two pages sorry we're getting getting so nitty-gritty right from the top but you have on, on a page titled central framing please frame left to right centrally Crosshairs, bang on faces, props, locations, exceptions for in-car work. We'll talk about that in a different document. But so that sounds a little British, this crosshairs, bang on faces. Do you mean center punching? Oh, I don't know what that means, but I assume you mean uh, <laughs> putting, putting someone right on the middle of the camera crosshairs. You know, a little cross in the middle of the camera, which not everyone uses, but I do. And yeah, the, the character bang on, meaning exactly there. 
that's definitely a, a colloquialism. So when you say bang on faces, props, locations, does that mean if it's just an empty room, it's perfectly centered in the frame? Uh, yeah, conceivably. I mean, it's it's uh, not necessarily, but I mean, it's it's rare that we would have an empty room with nobody in it in the show. Um, and, and obviously all this is sort of, this is exactly why I, I crossed out uh, rule book at the top of the uh, document input guide, because the, you know, you can't have rules for every single situation. But but yeah, certainly centralized framing is, uh, is, the, is an obvious, very obvious and you know page one of the rule book rule and that certainly is one of the things which we very much took from the first series um, which in turn took took that from the graphic novel okay so a lot of the inspiration of this framing comes from that graphic novel it, it does yeah i don't know if you've you've read it this is sort of a minimalist masterpiece um it's absolutely brilliant sort of line drawing stuff and there's there's almost nothing to it just just like the show you know the show is this is is minimalist almost to the point of abstraction you know there's there's not many props there's not much lighting there's not much camera movement all, all that is stripped away right but there's so much texture you know and gradations and tonality and stuff and absolutely so i, I sort of my sort of high concept sort of well lucy and my sort of high concept view of the show is on one hand a sort of a ultra minimalist graphic novel but somehow mixed in with a sort of a, a 90s coen brother-esque uh road movie shot you know sort of a early roger deakins type 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 thing so sort of somehow combining those two aesthetics um is is kind of and gets you the end of the effing world and everything feels so lived in like the art production design is like quite the design incredible. is brilliant yeah dick london did an amazing job on it so you have these very prescriptive rules that you kind of outline very clearly that i imagine are inspired by the graphic novel itself. So like things that we're, we're looking at, they're very specific. It's things like Oren, like zero tilt, right? So like... Right, yeah. So you have a whole list of things and we thought maybe it would be fun to go through them. So it, it's easy to say like this comes from the graphic novel, but I, I think I'd love to hear and I think our listeners would love to hear like kind of what that accomplishes like emotionally or tonally or visually. And I think how it makes it feel like a graphic novel. Right. I think your point is right, Oren. It's like easy to be like, oh, make it comic booky. But what does that mean, especially to something that's so specifically evocative? So let, let's run through them real quick, Oren. Walk us through. Yeah. So zero tilt. Whenever possible, keep the camera on zero tilt unless you really need to show a certain perspective. So what does that mean? You're, you're the camera's always level. The camera's always level. Yeah. There's no. There's. I mean, this is. There's a few shots where it's not, but uh, I'd say sort of 95% of the shots are without any tilt in the camera. Okay. Cool. So coverage about coverage. You say shoot within the dialogue. Don't shoot over the shoulders. Which I find this. It's a guideline that I'm always interested in doing in my work. But then at some point I'm like, oh, the shoulders just look so good. Like let me and and they kind of make a crappy shot like slightly less crappy because they're giving you a free foreground element. Absolutely. A little bit of depth there. Yep. Yeah. Um, next, you have no establishers. Please don't use establishers unless there's a serious action or information contained within them. Don't even shoot the buggers. Yep. Ooh, don't even shoot. Which is, that's an interesting rule for, you know, the BBC is kind of its own thing, but for a network show, like not shooting a piece of coverage like that and then if you got like a studio executive to be like, oh, we don't know where we are. Shoot the log cabin or whatever. I did notice all the establishing shots looked like ice stock photo shots. <laughs> or ice stock. Yeah, yeah there's they a pod five watermark in there. Uh, <laughs> okay, then don't move the camera during dialogue. Of course, not including Steadicam walking and talking scenes, which there are a lot of, right? They're walking down the street. They're walking there mm -hmm. around. But you can still... You could carry that sort of ethos into a walk and talk as well, right? There's a difference right. the between... The camera is staying the same distance from the actors, right, right? Right, Is kind of another way to say that. Minimize operating. Whenever possible, try not to pan and tilt the camera, especially when Benedict has been drinking that day. I spent most of my time on the, <laughs> on the series not touching the camera. You know, I would put it on zero tilt, chuck it um, and lock it off. Um, uh, so yes, uh, very little operating, often to the detriment, to be honest. I think there's a couple of times where I could have panned over a little bit to contain someone. But Well, you kind of have no a little notices. side note here. This is sometimes impossible without affecting performances, so don't worry about it too much, which I, I like and I think... That is a thing where a lot of times you are kind of pitching this idea of like a static camera shot, but the actors, you don't want to stop them from doing the things that they feel like they should do. Absolutely not. No, we're, we're here for them. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm there for them, not, not vice versa. So yeah, absolutely. You know, what, what they want to do is, is priority. Did you ever do the thing of like, you know, making the shot 
say a certain amount a certain percentage wider than you needed knowing that like hey we're just going to crop in everything 10 percent or something and give yourself that wiggle room no no and there's a reason for that and it'll be on uh, a couple of pages time on the rule book i mean i would say you know essentially those those rules that page of of rules there is is probably quite you know to a degree related to um the graphic novel I i wouldn't say that we took those specifically visually from what the graphic novel does um the centralized framing perhaps but but really it's more sort of um the graphic novel is so minimalist that's what we wanted to take from it was the minimalism was to pull away all the little things you do you know you did putting looking space on one side of the other of a screen you know doing little slides in all those things just try to pull all those things out of it to, to create something which was minimalist so rather than exactly visually mimicking the comic book it was about pulling everything away and, and i kid you not that graphic novel is incredibly minimalist so uh, yeah and that was the reason for sort of the majority of those rules on, on that page was to, to minimize what what we do uh, I mean, I think probably now is a good time to, to to say actually the rules serve a couple of purposes. One gives the show style, which is obvious. You know, if it's if it's always centrally framed, that's a style point. But actually, w- weirdly enough, they actually I found it's for, I didn't know this before. They actually helped with creativity. They actually you know made us more creative within the confines of the rules that we set. And it, and be little tiny things, you know, like sort of framing for a space where nobody's there. Uh, there's a couple of shots with uh, Alyssa and James on either side of the screen, and then in the middle, you're you're centered on the the space where you know where um, where where they're not. Um, so you know, so, so so there are ways to to really use that, and also to be honest, it's sort of you know you, you spend you know just say you've got a ten hour shoot day, and if you add up all the time you spend in that shoot day talking about where to place the character on the screen left or right is probably 20 minutes of shoot time uh, or 20 minutes of talking time, you know, throughout the day. So actually getting rid of a few things like that opens, weirdly opens you up to be able to discuss a few other things a bit more because obviously there's there's always a schedule and there's always a limit to the length of day. So actually all these sort of rules, rather than constricting creativity, they actually allowed creativity to flow and in, in flow in different places as well. What I love about that also, before you start a show or before you start a big project, you kind of are in this world where you're like, well, let's set up the rules. Let's give ourselves a guidebook. And Oren and I always joke about how quickly sometimes some of those grandiose ideas fly out the window, right? But with this in particular, I think that you have to stick to those rules pretty rigidly because otherwise what is style can just look like low budget or or unintentional filmmaking right if you don't really stick to that stuff then all of a sudden the you know the sweater becomes unraveled right you if you tear it enough of those of those threads and so did you ever in the moment think to yourself ah boy we sh- maybe this isn't going to look cool. Maybe we should move the camera. Maybe, what if we... I wish we had some circular track. Yeah, you know, like that's the extreme version, right? But it would be easy to get in the back of your head and be like, oh, is this is this just boring and not cool? You know? A- absolutely. I t- yeah, t- I totally agree. You know, you definitely want to sort of... There was plenty of times where you wanted to throw some throw some stuff at it but yeah yeah you, you know you, shoulder you've got up a, guys let's do it yeah but, but you, you know make it i essentially made a pact with lucy at the start of the of of the, of the show which was like this this rule book is it this is the bible unless we really 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 have to break these rules we we don't and they definitely did the trick yeah i find myself when i'm making rules like a lot of times it's time related that i'm like well my rule was that i don't move the camera but if we just pan here, we'll get two shots in one and we're an hour behind and the sun's coming down, you know. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I believe me, there's a number of times that it really made a rod for our own backs. It definitely, you know, they caused issues, those rules, believe me. But then, you know, think, things like, you know, it'd be rare that we'd shoot a, a wide shot of a scene because we wouldn't use wide lenses. And that was just, and that becomes part of the style. You know, there's, there's how many times do you see a, a wide shot of, you know, pe- people in, in the room, you'd never see a big wide of the location ever. Um, the most you'll see generally is like a sort of profile two shot. And, and you know, and that, that feeds, into the, it feeds into the style massively. So yeah, it, they definitely, it definitely gave us issues for sure. There's lots of annoyances and, and slowness 
occasional slowness from it where exactly you just want to chuck on a, a zoom and go punch in punch in two shot quick just do it quick sure because Ho- hose it down well. right like, exactly hose it down because that's where we are but there was a lot of time saving because of the rules as well so that we definitely got got that back right where what did you shoot on we shot on the ari alexa lf the large Ooh. format uh ARRI alexa the big one interesting and so let's let's talk about why you didn't give yourself a little bit of that wiggle room, that that extra ten percent for a punch in, especially if you're shooting if, on if LF is LF, yeah. What's the resolution? Uh, four point five k open gate. So I think it was pretty much bang on four k when we take a six of my nine crop. I mean, I guess we could we could have given ourselves a bit of wiggle room. I mean, it's, it, there's a sort of there's a there's a couple of reasons in there. Number one is we had a very strict selection of lenses. Again, with with this minimalist hat on, that was a thirty-five, a fifty, and a sixty-five mil lens. Now, in that was, we, I mean, we had a full complement of lenses, um, but that that's what we used ninety-nine percent of the the show. Thirty-five, fifty, and sixty-five. Yes, um, which roughly equates to um, in super thirty-five terms a twenty-seven. 32 and a 40 so it's very middle of the range oh, there's nothing okay. very wide in there and there's nothing very long in there you know you're sort of you're, you're right in the middle of, of of the range and again with this sort of minimalist uh, hat on you know you, you don't have extreme wide lenses and you don't have extreme long lenses in that set so nothing in the show really has got a, a wide angle lens on it because there's a lot of action in the show i mean there's you know murdering and things going on yep and uh, <laughs> there's plenty of times you just go oh fucking hell i wish i had a a wide lens on but that's kind of fun because sometimes when you do have that 16 mil and you're like "Ooh, this could be interesting or you have the 135 you're like this could be interesting yeah you just but saying you that out loud it. is time wasted right that's well, kind of what's your point yeah is, so right? you got you got you got three lenses you best make, best choose one of them and again all this is you know to, to bring the minimalism of the of the graphic novel to, to to nod towards this minimalist aesthetic nothing's super long nothing's super wide it's interesting that you didn't do like you know a wide a medium and a long lens right that you chose kind of three medium-ish three lenses bang in the middle um you know they're, they're, you know they're all they're not indistinguishable but they're fairly indistinguishable and what what lenses were they what uh they were zeiss supreme primes oh cool Cool. Are those special for that size sensor? They're, yeah, they're, they're sort of Zeiss's, um, they're like the new Master Primes, but for full frame cameras. Um, oh, cool. they're, they're sort of, yeah, they're T1.5, so they're pretty fast. Um, there's a good selection of them. And they're sort of, they, they're they not quite as sharp as Master Primes. So there's a little bit more of a sort of filmic softness to them, just a little edge taken off them. So if, if they've been vignette loads well. I mean, normally that'd be a negative, but actually with a show where you centrally frame, it's a massive positive. So they were, they were, they were great. And the show looks so filmic too. Yeah, it does like how ask- much of the color that we see in the final thing is done in the grade versus done by you? I mean, it's all... You know, it, it's a little bit of everything, but certainly we had we were we got um, a colorist called Toby Tompkins, um, who did the first series, and we were lucky enough to get him for. He's one of the only people who came back on the second series, um, and uh, and he's brilliant, and he's a genius, and you know he he really brings a lot, um, you know, technically and creatively. His sort of base grade, which he has, has got so many of his. I mean, I know nothing about grading really, but he's got millions of nodes. You know, like so many things. Have you going uh, on used Instagram under that? Uh, yeah, uh, that's actually really pretty helpful. Uh, it, I was, I was on, a, on a camping trip um, this past weekend and trying to getting like things sent to my phone, these like frame IO links to grade this commercial. And I was like, can we get like the blues like a little cooler? And then he, the color sent me something back and the whole, or sorry, the dark, you know, the black's a little cooler and sends me back the this thing and everything looks cooler. And like now her skin, instead of kind of being warm, it feels like kind of pink. And I was like, no, I kind of meant more something like this. And I just like put it in Instagram. Great. <laughs> and I was like, sorry, I'm so sorry that I'm doing this in Instagram, but just like more, more like this thing. Uh, but also like, and then for, you know, it's a commercial, it's not a Netflix show. So people are watching these things. It's a digital spot too. Like they are watching them on iPhone. So I feel mm. like my monitoring is not exactly that wrong. Also like using the tools, I was making a joke before, but using the tools that you know to help communicate, like who cares really, you know? Mm-hmm. Totally um, legitimate, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, maybe the colorist. So to go back to your question of why we didn't crop in a little bit on a very high res sensor, you know, which we could easily have done, uh, yeah, done a little bit of a crop. Essentially, I was really keen to use all the sensor 
Um, so w when I was testing it, the, the LF was fairly new when we got it. We had Ari Rental in the UK give us a couple for a very good price. Um, one as a backup, which we needed because the first one went down. Um, uh, and did a little bit of testing and, and you know they, they say they say Ari suggests that the ALEV 4 sensor or whatever it is in the the Alexa is best rated at 800 ISO obviously you can go a little bit more than that a little bit less than that but it has a bit of a bit of an effect in the, in the noise if you if you increase it, it essentially so the, the the normal Alexa sensor is sort of a little sort of four by three square like that and the LF sensor is two of those next to each other so essentially you've got double you've got two sensors next to each other so you've got double the number of pixels so compared to a normal alexa sensor the lf sensor when you output onto your screen of choice essentially with the lf sensor you've got double the number of pixels there so in theory you've also got therefore half the amount of noise you've got half the, the noise floor of it so sort of i, I tested and played with the camera and sort of realized that if you rated at 1600 iso which is you'll never see you'll never see that noise at all if you're at 1600 iso or, or even 2000 iso you won't notice the noise at all but essentially what you're getting is another stop of highlight protection so you're getting a whole nother stop like and when you're talking the sensor is you know 13 14 stops latitude as it is another stop when you're talking that, that that many stops is a huge amount more information in the highlights specifically um uh, and so that's that's why i sort of didn't crop into that sensor at all because i wanted to have every single pixel i could so we didn't see the noise so we keep that, that highlight roll off um and so there was there was sort of a yeah t creative reasons for sort of lens choice and being quite strict with that but also technically really want to use every single pixel in, in in that big old sensor and i bet this is one of the fusion netflix shows that shoots on re right because they, ha yeah. they had the 4k mandate a while ago is that the other reason that the LF well that's that's the reason i chose it in the first place i mean i'm not a red big red fan i used to have a red one many years ago and um you, you know what that you know it was a good disruptive force when it happens but the cameras are a pain in the ass and the way they handle highlights is abominable and it doesn't help a dp at all because it just easily burns out highlights whether whereas the alexa you know i don't think there's any magic behind it per particularly it just handles highlights really 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 well and just really takes care of you it's very filmic and in the way it handles those highlights really rolls them off so 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 i was like yeah let's use alexa is there any way we can get a, a lf because it it passes netflix's 4k mandate and yeah luckily ari in london let's have one just to kind of make sure that listeners are clued into what we're talking about here basically up until it sounds like this is the first example that we've heard of it it's an early one yeah netflix required that all anything that was a netflix original would be authored at 4k or higher basically they were trying to future proof resolution so that whenever we have our giant tvs and they're all 4k or whatever all of the stuff that they're streaming would still look great uh, which wasn't the case, I think, for their acquisitions, but like for the Netflix originals that they're, you know, they're sponsoring and making, they just want everything to be 4K. And so that meant that everything had to be shot more or less on red or some other equivalent. And DPs would always uh, shake their head and, uh, yeah. you know. I shoot everything on the Canon R5. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. 8K. Yeah, eight, so there you go. Future proof. It looks great. There's so much resolution. Um, but so it's interesting to hear that this large format camera now passes the muster for what uh, Netflix is requiring. Basically. It, it, it does. Yeah. I mean, you know, and, and that's, I think that's specifically why Ari built it, you know, um, uh, they, as far as I understand, they, they built it yet yeah, specifically to pass, to pass that. There are rumors on the wind of a super 35 sensor 4k Ari camera. Yeah, that'd be cool. But who knows where, where that is. Uh, personally, I quite like large formats. I quite like the bigger sensor. Um, I, I certainly, like what it does when you rate it a bit higher, higher sensitivities. I'm, I'm into it as it currently is, but let's see what they bring out in the future. But yes, certainly that it was, it was, um, uh, yeah, Netflix requirements were a pain in the ass. I'm very lucky that we got the uh, the Alexa. Made my life a lot easier. Can we talk just about two more things from this document, mm. just because I just find it fascinating, and I think our listeners, especially ones that are familiar with the show, will be like, "Ooh, I want my show to look like that," so I'm going <laughs> to follow all these rules. One of the things you wrote here uh, about the lens selection is if we use zooms, we try to, st to start or stop on a legal lens. So do you mean that before you zoom in or zoom out, you're starting and stopping at lenses that actually exist in, the, in your prime lens kit? Exactly, yeah. So, and, you know, we, we I think it was normally a, a start more than a stop because um, it would be easier to queue that up. Um, so, yeah, if we did a zoom, we would generally start on you know, 35 mil, uh, 50 mil or a 65 mil. Right. And you wrote about zooming. We definitely like a zoom in 
Don't throw too many of them in, but occasionally they're fun, retro, and cool. Our loose rule is to use a zoom for when a character is in their thoughts, perhaps into a flashback, dream, or voiceover, which is a cool thing. I feel like zooms are kind of making a comeback. A oh man, bit. yeah, Massive yeah, in comeback. a big way. Yeah, yeah have, have you? I probably shouldn't talk about other shows, but have you seen? Uh, I know this much is true. I haven't watched it yet. Absolutely amazing. Loads of zooms in that. I cannot recommend that show highly enough. Um, is that a Netflix show too? It's a, I think it's HBO. Um, yeah, that sounds uh, right. Yeah. I just um, borrowed it uh, off the internet. Sure. <laughs> um, but yeah. Uh, but, yeah, but uh, yeah, zooms are definitely back. You know, um, we, at the end of the effing worlds. Um, and, and all sorts of other shows are, are using them a lot. They're, they're, they're very cool. Can I ask? So oftentimes when you want the same sort of feeling as a zoom before you know, back in the day before people realized how cool they are, you would just do a dolly move, right? Did you, was that ever part of the conversation? Did you ever say like, hey, let's just live on our primes. That's the, that's the rule. And let's go ahead and break the, the camera movement rule instead. Mm, no, I mean, I, th- I think, you know, I think the show exists in a slightly weird, timeless, retro world. And, and I think that's really what the, what the very occasional Zoom use brings it. Because Zooms are definitely a retro thing to, 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 to do. To be totally honest, they're probably also a lot quicker than getting the track out as well. The show is, I know it's a net, well, it's actually not a Netflix show. So The End of the Effing World is a co-production between Channel 4 in the UK and, and Netflix in America. And so definitely this is not a violin moment, but, you know, um, Netflix are, you know, have the infinite money cheat sorted, um, whereas Channel 4 are incredibly poor. And so the sort of the actual budget for the show, even it has to be matched 50-50 between two of them. So the budget's not huge and our, our schedule is actually qu- quite quick. So we, uh, yeah, any little any little workarounds like that, um, uh, we, we, we chose and, and, you know, the Zooms worked sort of, again, creatively uh, and, and it worked logistically, you know, it sped, sped us up. Wow. Yeah, man. I, this document is so amazing. Like just kind of talking about the color and your white balance and using actual practical tungsten lights, but keeping your camera rated for 5600 Kelvin and then your blue hour at night, you're kind of shooting things bluer in the exteriors, but keeping them warm inside. For me, it sort of goes back to, you know, what we did in terms of what we did with the white balance goes back to um, what I was saying about it sort of half of the look of a show being this sort of 90s film aesthetic indie movie type thing and I sort of a and I think I wrote it in the documents uh, so a lot of the time I would sort of put this sort of role-playing game cap on and be like well if I was shooting an indie movie and we only had you know 100 speed daylight stock and we didn't have the time to money to light anything at all what what would this look like and in fact i kept the white balance on the camera locked to 5600 almost the entire shoot we shot pro res as well not raw so it it was locked into that so tungsten lights becomes very warm fluorescent light goes a little bit green you know we almost never did a trick white balance almost never white balanced anything to neutral um or or change the white balance to, to affect the picture to, just to keep this sort of filmic honesty which i wanted is to be you know burnt in as part of a look so yeah and and we did that by keeping the camera set to daylight the whole time that's so funny to me because i feel like if you could travel back in time you know, those DPs would be like, yeah, well, we splurged and got a couple other <laughs> film stocks as well. <laughs> you know, I didn't want everything to look like that. Um, and so it's so interesting to kind of reverse engineer that sort of mentality. Let me ask, this is, I feel like the most technical episode we've ever done, which is great, actually. It's a, it's a breath, breath of fresh air. The ProRes to RAW decision. Can you explain that a little bit? Because uh, I'm money, money. Oh, interesting. Money. Okay. Yeah, money and posts and various things like that. There's lots of things. There's you know little compromises which had to be made along the way. Um, you know, to get the good camera, you got to leave something else, and you know, so and I'm I'm always have to micromanage, and yeah, certainly it, it sort of essentially came to that. So what specifically? How are you saving money through recording to RAW rather, or rather, sorry, ProRes rather? Than it was a, a processing and post chat. But to be honest, we were sort of figuring out the rules, and um, I spoke to Toby Tompkins, colorist about that plan and you know ultimately if you're not going to change the white balance you don't need to worry about shooting raw you know anyway sure yeah anyway yeah so it kind of it kind of felt all right it, it, it didn't feel like a compromise particularly for me having said that there's a couple of times where skin tones are a bit murky under tongues and light and i wish there was a bit more less burnt in detail to be honest but you know it it, 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 it worked yeah that's great and then at the end of your document you have a bunch of references a lot of them from the Cohen brothers. Indeed. Which why they they use really wide lenses, right? For their um, I, I think they, they they are a big fan of twenty seven mil. I do believe like twenty one and a twenty seven and a thirty two. I feel like as well. May well be uh, you know so, which which feel like a sort of a, a fairly close match to ours in 
super 35 terms obviously our lenses are the numbers are bigger the longer but the because we're on full frame there's a slight difference in calculation so i have a I have kind of two more big questions uh one is yeah far away about kind of balancing comedy with darkness because the show while it's very dark and there is it is kind of about the end of the world <laughs> there's some very funny parts to it and kind of ridiculous situations that these two kids find themselves in and there is a little bit of that british dryness you know to 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 it but but if you looked at a frame you wouldn't be like oh that's a funny show right, right? but you also yeah. don't look at it and maybe part of this is casting you know there's part of it feels real very like likable and easy to connect to these characters and it could be just their faces you know <laughs> were there scenes where you're like oh this feels like a horror film too much or this feels like a comedy too much. Like, is that something you had to balance or is that no, not really? It something wasn't too bad, about? to be honest. I mean, we we got very lucky. We never once had, I mean, I think you hit on, you know, notes from the channel, from the broadcaster a little bit. We never had, and we, you know, Netflix is the best people for leaving us alone and letting us do our thing. So there were never any notes from, them. they never said make it less dark. They never said, have some more establishers in there they really left us alone and trusted us which was is an amazing thing i mean you know I've, i hear especially in, in north america you hear horror stories of you know networks and channels getting really involved and you know sacking people left right and center because of whatever um sure if um, you don't have a clean single uh in your american comedy then you haven't done your job basically yeah. right for, for me studio notes i've never had them before because i've never done a big studio job feel like sort of almost like commercials when you shoot commercials you get notes from a client and you can never argue them and then they i find often they're against the creativity which you're trying to do in a commercial you sort of understand them a little bit more but from what i understand yeah uh, uh some notes from a channel are not always the, the 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 nicest thing to receive but when you were shooting for mtv did they never say like oh this doesn't feel like mtv this is too cinematic make it more zooms more handheld like more neon yeah. that's not pimp my ride funnily enough yeah. but actually it's not pimped enough i totally forgot about this i did when i did the first series of uk pimp my ride back in 2004 or something like that um that dates me um uh, there was actually an american team which came over and they had a 30 or 40 page show bible of everything that you do in the show you know it's a shot of a guy in front of the car or a girl in front of the car and then then it this camera spins around the car and then exhibit arrives but but yeah mtv brought over a big show bible from the uk totally i would wrong. love to compare the end of the fucking world bible to the pit my ride bible because it feels like they might literally be polar opposites i mean i've i've well you never know i've, I've totally forgotten about this thing maybe it's just embedded in my subconscious and maybe the answer to all <laughs> sure. these questions is like yeah i just ripped it off of pit my ride yeah <laughs> Uh, but yeah. to, to, to go back to your question about, about about comedy though most of my scripted experience is comedy and in fact a lot of my commercials experience is comedy as well uh, I don't think comedy has to be there's a sort of view that comedy has to be really flat and has to be really bright um, I, I, I definitely don't think it does I think really you've with comedy you've got to feel for the cast you've got to be you know you've got to have empathy for the cast um, and you've got to feel that, that whatever they're feeling and and you know my job as DOP is to help aid that um, you know for feeling awkward you know use awkward lighting use the awkward gel if they're having a hard time it's dark and moody you know and I think that's totally fine there is this definite view where comedy has to be it's really sort of just put a big soft light above the lens and and it's great and and anything you do other than that takes away from a comedy there's there's a lot of people who think that these days still um, uh, and yeah I definitely just definitely disagree with that can I ask you about the like color for a second so if, uh, listeners if you go to benedictspence.com you can see a lot of Benedict stuff. And I'm just kind of scrolling through your commercial and promo work here. And in general, all your stuff, including the narrative stuff, the color palette just seems very controlled. Like how much of that are you involved in? And do you have any kind of general strategies of like how you approach color in a way that things feel vibrant or like real, but also have a look and a feel and a style to them? My other answer actually for, for, for commercials work is, I mean, I love references you know is is i will sit down with the director and i will go through i've got you know ten thousand photos on my computer and we'll just go through them and say what we like and we'll rip it off <laughs> um and, you but know, you talk to the production designer too like art department and everything to a degree in terms of the color of lighting and the color contrast i think i i'm a great believer in finding a good reference 
um, and and using that to guide you because you know you can talk till you know I'm I can talk a lot and I don't always make a lot of sense so I can sit there and talk with the director until the sun comes up uh, and and never really quite get to the crux of of what we're talking about whereas if you find a photo or a still or a graphic novel or whatever it is and you sit there with the director and say something a bit like this and they go yeah something a bit like that and then at least you know do you analyze like why it is like that like look at the wardrobe look at the oh yeah my job you know i definitely work in conjunction with designers and you know wardrobe people supervisors rather than telling them how to do their stuff you know but but it's definitely a sort of a a a collaboration with with them but for me my my sort of my sort of work in in color and and palette which which is always to do with what color of lighting i'm doing and what the sort of the tones of of that are and what the contrasts of that color are um for me yeah always begins a reference with the director and say how about something like this um and then occasionally they take it to other people and then you know and then you start pre-production and then you start talking to um, a designer and, and things like that. For, for example, I mean, you know, sometimes the production designer, you know, for example, is is on equal pegging to me as a head of department. And sometimes, like, for example, in the NDFing world, we had a designer called Dick Lunn, who was absolutely amazing, brought so much to everything. Uh, but then there's a couple of things occasionally which you know which as a dp you go oh can we can we do this perhaps or if you've got something in your head for example the red neons on the diner were something which i had in my head from from the start uh, and it all sort of boiled down to a, a sort of an image of james in front of a diner at blue hour with the red neons i don't have many ideas but that was that was a sort of thing which hit me when i sort of read the script i was like Brilliant. And I imagine practicals and things like that you're asking it would be great to have a practical behind him right here, right? Absolutely. And and it's something which I keep on, you know, learning from from screwing up on, to be honest, is, is practicals. Uh, I seem to never be able to get it in my head that it is down to me as well as a designer. Uh, I, I always say, oh, can we get some practicals? And then they're like, oh, brilliant, great. And then it's sort of, it's never quite right. Um, uh, you know, as in, obviously, they're also, they look great in frame, but, you know, sort of, especially like on the end of the effing world where you rely upon the practicals so much to to light the space as a dp you've got to be really on those practicals you've got to know exactly you wouldn't bring a normal light to set and you know about you know the brand new sky panel 10,000 and you wouldn't know how to use it and you know you, you would never be in, put yourself in that situation so with practicals as a dp i constantly don't do this quite enough but you need to be all over the practicals you need to be really understand what they are where the light leaks from what colors of the shade you know how how can you control them are they dimmable can you put a normal bulb in them you know all these sort of things it's not fair to I mean, it's impossible to leave to the production designer because they're not thinking about the same things that you are they'll be right. thinking about they picked a cool looking lamp exactly right, right, totally. yeah. and it's flickering now when you put your camera on it <laughs> yeah totally or it's got a little hole at the top and as much like this ends that way it sends totally the opposite direction all over the ceiling or whatever i love that so, uh, while we're on the topic of collaboration i, I want to dig in a tiny bit more with your relationship with the director right because i think we've had like i was joking before but like this is maybe the most technical conversation we've had on the show right how much of these conversations lens choices you know native iso you know like locking your color temperature all of that stuff that we you get real nerdy on and i'm sure you can go much much deeper how much of that is something that you kind of have translated your conversations with Lucy and how much of those are like literally like you're saying numbers getting technical basically like what's the what's what's the balance on all that stuff I mean it's different it is different for different directors some directors want to be right in the technical side of things some don't Lucy do you have a preference I think sometimes a little knowledge can be a little bit dangerous but a lot of knowledge is okay so um I see one of the two extremes is my preference you know just enough to be dangerous as I like to say yeah Yeah. well yeah so if a director knows just just enough to I mean or even a lot you, you know there is a always a little tiny layer of bullshit uh, on set about what you do so um you don't always want to see straight through that but anyway but with with specifically with that is a bit of a joke um uh, not entirely <laughs> and and a little bit true yeah, yeah and a little sure. bit true. you don't need someone to tell you how to do your job if they don't literally know how to do it i mean yeah right? exactly totally exactly um uh, and if they do literally do it i'm happy not, not great. to be there yeah. don't worry about it it's fine you know it <laughs> saves talking telling me what to do um, sure so with 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 lucy yeah de- definitely she is less technical she is you know very much about performance but she's also about you know sort of the, uh, angles and uh you know camera movements but she's definitely not deep into the into the technical side of things uh you know i think um i, I sort of i think i you know i will it's, it's important to keep her in the loop 
so it's important to like for example explain our workflow with monitoring on set and what she would be seeing and what she wouldn't be seeing but you know she's bloody smart so she picked it up quite quickly um uh you know and and then sort of just relaxed into it but you know you sort of yeah it's, it's not her job to know all the ins and outs that's you know that's 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 why i'm there but i definitely don't shy away from giving her a, just a once over in terms of what we're setting out to do technically i feel like i used to be a director that would be like if an image looked a little too blue i'd be like hey what's the white balance set to and a lot of dps don't really like that quite they prefer you saying like this looks a little blue well yeah i mean um uh i, th- I think lucy would probably say yeah what's why balance if there's if there was an issue with it i mean obviously on this show the answer is always the same right 50 um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I guess there's a lot of trust as well and i guess that's something which which when you are a long-term collaborator with somebody you know i i i, I trust lucy implicitly and she trusts me i hope implicitly you know so you know if if she says we you know you got to stop playing with that light. We've got to go now. I'll, I'll do it. You know, if she says it, it doesn't look right. I'm not going to argue with her and say, oh, it does look right. I'm going to, I'm going to try and find out what she doesn't quite what she, you know, she'd probably just say straight away. It's, 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 it's too cold. And I'd be like, okay, brilliant. I'll warm it up. You know, there's no, I would never argue against what my director wants. You know, you sort of sometimes lobby for certain things, you know, certain bits of blocking, but. Do you ever challenge them to try to make it better? Like, not Lucy, but other directors you've worked with saying like, Let's, we're just going to do this two shot here. And you think it's just a boring shot. Absolutely. But, you know, you sort of, it, but, but I think that and over the years of working directors that, that, that comes with trust. You know, I think if a director doesn't trust you and isn't listening to you straight away, then maybe you just haven't worked with them long enough. Um, you know, I, I sort of, I, yeah, when it comes to Lucy and me, if I say, you know, let's do this shot here, she'll generally say, yeah, okay, cool. Uh, or if she says, no, I don't want to do that. I'll say, yeah, okay, cool. You know, and, and I think, you know, sort of when you've been working with someone for over a decade, that, that, um, uh, yeah, that, that shorthand is, is a, an amazingly powerful tool to have on set. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because I feel like whenever you're working with someone new, right, like you, you have to learn what their priorities are and how, what language they speak. And I feel like oftentimes when I'm asking for a DP to compromise, I, I'm always on their side. I know it could be better, but also I'm responsible for the calculus of what other shots we need to get, right? And like the question for me is always like, are you going to be a pain in the ass? Are you going to make me feel bad? about like needing to rush something or not because we only if we want to get 16 shots today and we've only got time for 15 we have to compromise somewhere and either i'm going to feel shitty about it and we're going to compromise or we're going to make them all as good as we possibly can and we're going to compromise do you know what i mean yeah like it's it's a weird funny thing to deal with in my opinion it's a dp's job to make the day as a dp it is your job to be on time, be on schedule, and it's your job to push in exactly the same direction as as the director to identify wh- how they want to work, how slowly they want to. You know, some I've done jobs where the director has spent all day on performance, and my lighting turnarounds have to be instant. You know, it's a single light through the window outside, pan it one way, turn around, shoot the other way. You know, and, and th- that's not a huge amount of fun for a DP, but it's your job to get through those days. Um, and make the show which the director wants to make. If the director wants to, you know, is happy to, uh, you know, if, if it, you're only getting a few shots in a day and if the director is just happy if you take time and light stuff, brilliant, do that. That's, that's great. But really, ultimately, it's, it's your job to make the day how a director wants, um, n- not, not to go shoot your show reel. Ideally, you do both. Ideally, you can somehow squeeze, squeeze both out at the same time. That's a real skill. Let me know, let me know how you do that when you find out. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, right. to me, that's like when a DP knows they've kind of made it is when the stuff they're shooting and everyone else is happy with, they're also happy with. <laughs> I know we have to wrap up soon, but can you just give us a list of a couple things that you, that directors have done that uh, are not helpful? Like, like any tidbits uh, for some newer directors, maybe you've worked with people that have always shot stuff on their own and you're the first time they're working with a DP or, or they come from it, their actors turned directors some some tips you can give us of things to avoid i think one of the you know the the things which we all strive to do is to not talk about things too much on set uh, i think when you're on set that's when there is the clock is ticking there is a stopwatch somewhere ticking down to when you have to wrap or or when it's going to start costing production money um so you know any decisions that every single decision that you can make away from set 
um, is going to save you time and that's going to be more takes and a happier crew and better lighting and and you know better better acting whatever it is so take every single last decision that you can and make it before the shoot day um, that's 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 a sort of big one which is how rules work right like that's the brilliance of having a bible like that there's no question about absolutely yeah it has about every single bit of looking space that you're ever going to discuss on set on a whole series for three months uh just get rid of all those out of the day and just say yeah we'll be centrally framed across the whole thing don't worry about it so so that's that's sort of a a, a big bit of advice i mean in terms of um working with a, a, a dp i think i think do you know if you can trust them they spend their life looking at light and studying light and playing with cameras it's, it's your job not necessarily to tell them exactly what to do but to give them idea of of how you want something to feel um rather than being super prescriptive um and, and yeah trust trust that they do sort of um see light in a in their own in their own way obviously that's not all necessarily true for people who are absolutely just starting out but maybe it is right look at them more as a collaborator than a technician absolutely totally yes well awesome well i watched i think both seasons of end of the fucking world uh each season in one sitting it goes fast it yeah does go fast, um, it? yeah yeah and really really enjoyed it uh, how they look and how they feel and how they're performed. And they've inspired a lot of me and hope this doesn't go to your head. But I do think if I'm talking to a director of photography and showing them some references, I might show them some stuff from your website. So don't feel bad about that because it's, I'm sure a lot of people are referencing your stuff. That's how it goes, man. Yeah. It's, it's a weird feeling. It's a weird feeling. Something getting all this attention. <laughs> Is there anything coming out soon that we should keep an eye out for? Uh, Lucy and I's next job, I think I can talk about it. I can talk about it. Is a co-production between the BBC in the UK and AMC in the States. And it is a adaptation of a book called This Is Going To Hurt, which is the diaries of a junior doctor in the National Health Service uh, in the UK. And uh, yeah, it's, it's a absolutely brilliant book it's a huge big bestseller over here obviously in the uk we love our nhs um especially during pandemic and that's shot already that is no that's not not yet it was supposed to be shooting right now in fact it's supposed to just be wrapping now in fact but um this thing happens um and uh we're not allowed to film dramas anymore for a little while uh so we got bumped back to january so i think that'll be starting in january and that is yeah it's very exciting it's quite sort of doctory i would highly recommend the book it's called this is going to hurt it's written by adam k um it's it makes you laugh and it makes you cry and i don't laugh or cry about anything really and it made me laugh and cry Awesome. Um, well, before we hop into unpaid endorsements, Benedict, where can people find out more about you? Are you on social or you got your website? Yeah, I've got um, my website, benedictspence.com, and I have my um, snappily named Instagram, which is benedict underscore spence underscore DOP. I also have a Twitter uh, account, Benedict DOP, which I use very regularly. But yeah, please do follow me on Instagram or have a look at my website or message me. I try and be quite engaged with people online, especially during pandemic. Um, I think and you have a podcast that you you're not quite so active on anymore but if listeners wanted to check out your podcast yeah it's called uh tail slate i think it's uh tail slate.fm um and it's also on apple Podcasts somewhere that makes sense no one that means forgotten to keep doing yeah it. we're gonna name it later <laughs> after the fact oh man jumping on each other's jokes <laughs> doing um, this too long great uh, well, Benedict, can you hop into unpaid endorsements with us? Uh, yes, why not? Unpaid endorsements. So I've got two endorsements. Uh, they're both media related. I'll start with the one that people haven't seen. Uh, it's a short film called The Voice in Your Head. Uh, it was on Short of the Week. We'll go ahead and tweet it out. It's really great. Uh, it's a fun comedy about, uh, you know, the personification of the voice in your head of, of like negative feelings, basically. So a person who... Um, has a man kind of following him around, you know, telling him to like walk like a normal person. Like, why why are you so stupid? Why are you doing that? Kind of just like hounding him all the time. Uh, but with a fun twist that I won't give away, but takes what's a kind of familiar sort of trope and like twists it on its head in a way that's really fun. And also the camera work and the stage direction, everything about it is really well executed. So it's, a, I think, a really good example of a short that takes something familiar and just executes it at a really premium level. I think it was at South by this last year and is now up on short of the week. Um, What's it called? It's called uh, the voice in your head. And then my other endorsement is obvious to everyone except for me, the last dance, which was uh, the Michael Jordan documentary that was on ESPN and is now on Netflix. I told you you even need an endorsement. It's so good. Here's the actual endorsement. 
I could not care less about sports. I don't, I like, I can't name the last time I watched a game of any sort, including the Super Bowl. I don't know the last time I saw a sports game telecast. And I have loved The Last Dance. So just because you don't care about putting balls in hoops or over gold lines or whatever, the human drama and the pathos of that documentary is top notch. Really great. I concur on that one. I think it's brilliant. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Yeah, that uh, voice in your head reminds me of this amazing progressive insurance uh, campaign that's going on right now, where it's this guy who's like trying to get people to be less like their parents. Have you seen? Oh man, that spots? campaign is so good. Yeah, it's like this guy's reading a book about submarines, and he's like, the the coach is like, "Who reads books about submarines?" The guy says, "My father." Yeah, yeah, stop doing that. Anyhow, okay, Benedict, you got anything? I'll do two as well. Uh, one's very quick, just to repeat what I said before, which is I know this much uh, is true, which is on uh, HBO, I do believe. And it is an, it's Mark Ruffalo playing uh, himself and his twin. Um, and it is uh, incredibly dark. It is so dark. It leaves me feeling so sad. But it is um, a filmmaking... It's like it's beautiful, wonderful filmmaking. It is really, really, really good. I'm only halfway through the series. But yeah, I would highly recommend that. Uh, and then the other one is any science fiction book by Ian M. Banks. Ian M. Banks is a writer uh, and he's dead now, unfortunately. Um, and uh, once you read his sci-fi, you can never, ever read any other sci-fi ever again without getting horribly bored of it. Unfortunately, last week it was announced that the Amazon series of his collected culture books um, is been cancelled because his estate wasn't happy with it or something like that um, but honestly i can't tell you how amazingly written they are um as a as a sci-fi fan i i reread them all the time they're absolutely brilliant they are so imaginative it's unreal um without being geeky and weird they're like they're just amazing books um so i'd highly recommend that if anybody's into sci-fi uh, the ian m banks culture series so it's about a sort of a future space culture enormous you know billions upon billions of people um and they rely upon sort of ais and machines and spaceships and their spaceships have all got weird names but it's brilliant okay i'll go uh, i'll also do two one real quick i think a lot of people know this is a great documentary but speed cubers have you guys seen that one yeah it's it's pretty fun it's yeah. really short it's like 40 minutes it's on netflix and it's about solving the rubik's cube and these uh, basically the world champion Rubik's Cube solver gets dethroned by this autistic kid from California. The world champion is Australian. And they're kind of two of the greatest of all time, basically. Yeah. And pretty much all the greatest of all times Rubik's Cube solvers are kids because once you become an adult, you're not practicing, you know, 20 hours a day anymore. But it's really moving. It's really touching. I personally did like was like a Rubik's Cube person. <laughs> um, so were so, you uh, sub but, sub ten or in sub five? How fast did you go? I could very consistently do sub three minutes. Um, <laughs> okay, I, on the go. in the documentary, <laughs> they are talking about seconds. You know, solving it like with one three hand. Three minutes is still pretty seconds. fast. Yeah, when you watch them do it one handed, it looks like someone's just pretending to solve a cube. Yeah, but then it's done. It's crazy. I thought one of the interesting rules is when you, when you, you know, mark that you're done solving the cube. If you didn't, if you missed like your last move or your last two moves, you still get the credit, but they add a second for each move you missed. So if you solved it in seven seconds, but you needed two more twists, it's, you get a nine second. Um, Also, I I noticed a technicality where uh, if they, because they basically, they solve it and then they slap their hands on the table. But if the final move it has to be within 45 degrees of being squared up. So like even it can be kind of perfect, but if it's, if it's not completely twisted into place. Yeah. That's when you get one of those penalties. Yeah. 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 Um, And then my other thing is kind of on the same note of, if you don't like sports, you will like save the last dance. Well, if you don't like camping, you will like this place that I just went camping at. It's called El Capitan. It's in Santa Barbara and it's, just like the most fun place to go, especially if you have kids and stuff and you don't like pitching tents and sleeping in dirt and all that stuff. You get a log cabin. It's got electricity and a whole bathroom and everything. But you're in nature. And when we were two nights ago, we were like, you know, grilling. You, you grill your own food, but you just order like a grill kit and they drive it to you. They deliver it to you with like a, you know, a valet type guy. 
Um, and it's got like the salmon pre-marinated, like wrapped in tin foil. They give you the logs with the fire starter. They're like, just put this here and like light it on fire. Put the salmon on here for two minutes, flip it over. It's like blue apron, but you're in nature. But there are actual animals. While we were there, we saw all trying to get our food, uh, skunks, raccoons. We saw two foxes come by. Um, and we saw how did they taste deer? We didn't eat them, but, um, we were trying to get the skunks away. So we had these chips, they're called Pocky chips, P-A-Q-U-I. They make some of the spiciest chips in the world. Like they, they're literal competitions to see who can eat an entire chip without like throwing up. And we had a few, so we're like, oh, we'll, we'll just sprinkle these chips on the ground and then one skunk will eat one and they'll never come back. Yeah. Give a skunk diarrhea. That's a good plan or well, anyway, at five minutes later, like every animal in the forest came to get these chips. They loved them. And literally, uh, our friend Bramley, who was in one of the cabins, she said that she was in the cabin and a raccoon was like literally knocking on her window. Like, um, so I guess nature animals like really, really, really spicy chips. Um, but El Capitan, it's just an awesome place to go with your family. They have a pool and a playground and walking distance to the beach and all these things that were closed due to COVID, but it was fun nonetheless. Well, Benedict, this was great. Uh, Let us know the next time you have a project you want to come talk to us about. Yeah, this is so awesome. Thanks. I think people are really going to love this. Yeah, it's going to be great. My pleasure. Thank you very much for for having me. Yeah, man. Uh, This episode was edited by Sarah Weirda, and this episode was produced by Sarah Weirda as well. Our new social media manager is Derek Aiello, uh, and you can follow me at Mr. Matt Enlow across all social media and you can follow the show at just shoot it pod our webmaster is ewan williams and you can follow me on instagram at okaplin on twitter i'm at smitey pileg and uh we will catch you next time thanks, thanks. everyone head over to hulu this march where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.